in this second lecture today we will continue with the topic begun yesterday yesterday we began speaking about the particular characteristics of Buddhism and we will carry on with this today yesterday we felt it was necessary to talk about all religion all the different kinds of religion and to do so we spoke of three main types of religion religions which depend on the power of faith religions that depend on the power of mind and the third kind religions that are based in the power of wisdom Buddhism falls into the third category and so today we would like to go into more detail about this religion which uses the power of wisdom what kind of wisdom is used how is it used in what sort of situations or regarding what kind of things is this wisdom used and so this is what we will discuss today this thing we call banya or wisdom we need to be we need to begin by pointing out that what we're talking about when we use the word wisdom has nothing to do with reasoning or philosophy or logic when we use the word wisdom it means to see to realize clearly to see absolutely clearly that such a thing is so this is what we mean by wisdom we're not talking about lower levels of knowledge for example when you are listening to a talk such as this one the words you listen to are bringing a just an ordinary normal level of knowledge the knowledge we get from listening or reading this level of knowledge is nothing special and it's not that useful for solving the problem of dukkha but once we have listened then we can process that information rationally intellectually we can reason about it we can use logic we can use various philosophical techniques in order to develop a deeper understanding to take that information we have heard or read and develop it more deeply this is a second level of knowledge or wisdom which we could call intellectual understanding but that still isn't sufficient and this isn't yet what we mean when we talk about wisdom the wisdom we're really talking about is then taking that intellectual understanding and applying it living it putting it into practice and then from that living from that direct personal experience arises a kind of clear penetrating 
experience or vision of truth. And this is what is meant by, by wisdom. Direct, clear, penetrating realization in insight into truth. It, it's not what you hear and it's not what you think. It's just what is directly known from experience. This third kind of wisdom is the wisdom we're talking about when we say that Buddhism is a religion based on the power of wisdom. It's this third kind of wisdom that we're talking about. This, we're not sure exactly what understanding you have of the English word wisdom. You might tend to give it meanings other than the ones we've just spoken of. Some people might think that wisdom is something that can be learned in school. But that's not the kind of wisdom we're talking about. Or some people think that wisdom is what arises when we, when we think about, when we philosophize about the information we get from books and other sources. If this is your understanding of the word wisdom, then we want to point out that the wisdom we're talking about is something that comes from the direct experience by the mind. Instead of the mind knowing something indirectly by way of hearing about it from someone else or by thinking about it, these are indirect ways of knowing something. What we're talking about is the direct contact of something by the mind, to know something directly in direct, direct spiritual experience. And we can call this intuitive wisdom to differentiate it from the other kinds of things that you might call wisdom. The, the other indirect kinds of knowledge are uncertain because it doesn't involve a direct contact with the mind. But intuitive wisdom can't be wrong because the mind directly experiences whatever the object of knowledge is. And so there is no room for error in that direct spiritual experience. So this is the specific kind of wisdom, intuitive wisdom that we're talking about here. An important fact about these three levels of wisdom is that we can't really use just one of them. All three of them are re interrelated and must be used together. For example, we, we generally begin, or almost always begin, our knowledge about something by hearing about it or reading about it by some kind of study and learning from someone else. This gives us a beginning knowledge about a certain subject, but according to Buddhist principles we don't jump to any conclusions and we don't believe, believe what we hear blindly. We listen and we 
we accept that information. Then we take that information and, and think about it. We reason about it. We use our analytical, our deductive and inductive skills to consider whether this information we have heard is likely to be true. We compare it with other information we have and we think it through. Is this information likely to be of use or not? Now, just because we've thought it through doesn't mean we accept that it's automatically true. Many people stop at this point and think whatever they have reasoned out must be true. But it's very easy that we apply the rules of logic improperly, that our thinking is not completely clear, that it's somewhat irrational or emotional, or even the original information we started with may have been incomplete or even incorrect. So it's, it's very possible that the understanding we, we come to from reasoning may still be faulty. And so then it is necessary to find out from direct experience whether it's true or not. And so we take our intellectual understanding and experiment with it. We use our lives to experiment and see if it's really true. To get to this third level of wisdom, which is certain, in which there is no doubt, we have to use the other two levels as well. In Buddhism, what we do is we, we learn to have a proper and balanced relationship between these three levels of understanding. We don't get stuck on just one, on say just the information level or the reasoning level, but we use all three together to, to realize a complete and perfect understanding. And in this way we have true wisdom, the kind that can really solve the problem of dukkha. Although the knowledge <coughs> that will result from this talk will merely be the first level of wisdom, <coughs> please realize that nonetheless this is where we must begin, that this information level is absolutely necessary. Our understanding of anything, of even the most important things of life, begins with hearing about it or studying about it in such as we are doing now. So don't take these talks lightly. This is where our knowledge begins. And then as we talk about this more and more and go into more detail, we not only have the information level of wisdom, but we begin to reason about it. And then after the talk, you can continue to think about these things in the, the days and weeks ahead. And through thinking and processing it rationally, realize an even a deeper, more personal understanding. So these two levels are, are necessary in order to, to come to the third and complete level of understanding from when we directly 
experience this object of knowledge with the mind and then know it in the way of intuitive wisdom. So here we are at the beginning of this process of developing in wisdom and this is the necessary first steps of hearing about something in order to carry it through and realize the benefits of this knowledge and wisdom that we're talking of. So please prepare yourself to make the most of this, this opportunity. We would also like <clears throat> to point out that in studying and learning in the way we're doing now involves language and thus language becomes a problem or at least a difficulty. Ajahn Buddhadasa is beginning from the Pali scriptures, the scriptures of, of Theravada Buddhism, which are written in the Pali language. This is what he studies and then is speaking now in time. So taking the Pali language and converting it into Thai. And then the translator is taking the Thai in converting it into English. And for some of you who are not native speakers of English, you go even a step further and are sometimes translating this into your own language. So we're at least dealing with three languages, if not sometimes four. And this is something to be aware about. The best thing would, to do would be to just take the, the thing we're talking about and show it to you. But we're not able to do that. And so we have to fall back on the method of speaking about it. But these different words we use, the word in Pali doesn't have the exact same meaning as the Thai, the corresponding Thai word like Panya in Pali is trans in Thai is pronounced Banya and some Thai people have a different understanding of that and then this is translated into wisdom and in German or French or Hebrew who knows what how you would translate wisdom these words these terms in different languages don't exactly correspond to each other this is why this way of learning is only the beginning. It's a necessary start, but we can't depend on these words because we're, each of us gives the different words different meanings. And when we translate from language to another language to even a third or fourth language, it's possible for the meanings to, to change somewhat. This is not a an insurmountable difficulty. It need not be a problem, but we have to be aware of this situation that happens when we must depend on language in this kind of learning. When we ask what Buddhism is about, what the particular characteristic of Buddhism is, as we are doing today, in Thai, it would be very easy to say, and it's also in English, that Buddhism talks about life and the truths, the truth of life. 
Buddhism is about life and the truth of life. It's very easy to say it like this in Thai or in English. But in the Pali language, you never see it explained this way. Rather, in the, the Pali language or the, the special Dhamma language that we like to use, it is usually just Buddhism is about the Sankharas and the truth of all Sankharas. Sankara is a very important word which means compounded, conditioned, concocted things. Things that are put together, which are brewed up, cooked up, which are formed, which have a beginning and an end. These are sankharas. In Buddhism is about all conditioned things and the truth of all conditioned things. So in our Dhamma language, we would explain it like this, but in in English, it's more easy to say that Buddhism is about life because the life is made up of nothing but sankharas, compounded, conditioned things. And so, Buddhism is about life and the truth of life. But this just illustrates how we have to be very careful in how we listen and understand what is said because there is room to, to misunderstand if we don't listen carefully and aren't very clear about what is being said. So today we'll speak about life. But we're going to speak about it in the, from the understanding and along the meaning of Dhamma, the Dhamma understanding of life. As far as the ordinary understanding of life, you already know this. What the common everyday meaning of the word life is, you already are very familiar, so we don't have to talk about this. What we will talk about is the Dhamma understanding of life. When we speak about life in, in Dhamma or in Buddhism, we, we talk about the five khanda, the five khanda, or the five groups, the five aggregates. And these are corporeality, rupa khanda, feeling, the feeling group, vetana khanda, the perception or regarding group, sanya khanda, the thought group, sankara khanda, and the consciousness group, Vijnana Khanda. These five Khandas are what make up life. In any moment, one of these Khandas is, is what life is. In this moment, life is corporeality. In another moment, life is feeling, arising towards experience, a mental feeling. At another moment, life is the perception or discrimination, the classification of that life experience. Or in another moment, life is the thoughts, the thinking, the conceptualization about what has been taking place. And in some moments, life is the 
bare sense consciousness, the knowing, the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or mental activity. These are the five khandhas. Taken together as a group, we call these five aggregates life. In, in Dhamma, this is what life is, the functioning of these five khandhas. In each moment, it's a different khanda or different aggregate which is functioning. And taken together, this is what life is. And so we would like to talk about each one of these aggregates in detail in order to help us understand life and the truth about life. Sometimes all of our awareness is centered on the body. Sometimes in some moments the only thing we're aware of is the body. And then as the body moves or there is some physical activity, then the, the mind foolishly thinks that the body is, is I or the body is mine. When all this, in the moments when awareness is just based on rubakanda, the corporeality group or the body, then this is generally taken to be I. This part of life is identified with, is clung to as I. This happens because we don't see that the body is merely various physical phenomena arising and passing away. It's just a natural process of action and reaction. Um, various conditions are working, causing various effects. And so we have various conditions causing other conditions. We have conditioners and conditioned things which result from the, the conditioning agents. There's this natural process of phenomena arising, changing, and passing away. This is what is taking place, but we don't see this. And so we, we attach to the physical movement as I or as mine. But if we could just see that it's nothing but a natural process of action and reaction, of cause and effect, then this correct understanding of the situation would prevent the ego from taking over. Without this understanding, ego arises, or a feeling of I, a sense that there is a self, that this physical activity is a self, is me, is my soul. We get egoistic or selfish about the body in this way because we don't see it as just this natural process. If we saw it as a natural process, then the ego wouldn't arise and there would, no be, there would not be any dukkha, any pain arising associated with that bodily activity. But because we don't have a correct understanding of rupakanda, of the body aggregate, this egoistic identification takes place and then the body is made into dukkha, 
one way or another. And so this is why we need to understand the body aggregate, rupakanda, so that this egoistic problem doesn't occur. In the past, there, were, there was a school of thought in India which believed that there was nothing but corporeality, nothing but body. We talk about five groups making up life. This school of thought said there was only one group, Rupakanda, the body group. And they said that nothing else existed, nothing else was real. The only reality was the body and physical things, or Rupakanda. And they, this gave rise to a belief in a certain kind of heavenly realm called the, the, the One Kanda Brahma world. The One Kanda Brahma world. These were very exalted Brahma beings that had nothing but body and no mind. This was one school of thought which existed in India. It may sound like a funny school of thought to say that only body exists and there is no mind, but this, this way of thinking has continued into the present time, and in fact nowadays it is much stronger than it, it used to be. The descendant of this school of thought is called materialism, and one of its, its prime aspects today is, well, we've got dialectic materialism, we've got capitalism and things where the, the, ins, the true reality is taken to be material and the mind is considered to be an insignificant um, attachment or something just kind of hanging around in corners and where the only real thing that is important and matters is material, physical things, the body. This, this school back in India, of course, was disagreed with by many, many other schools of thought. There were all kinds of different systems of understanding in ancient India. And most of them would, could not accept that there was only body. And many, many held that there was both body and mind. Body, rupa and mind or mentality is nama. So, body, nama, rupa, mind, body. They held that there was much more to life than just the body. And then in talking about mind, it was described in terms of four aspects or the four groups which we know as feeling, perceptions, thinking, and consciousness. This is what we will now go into more detail about. The first of the mental groups or mental khandas is Vetana Khanda, the feeling aggregate. Sometimes they use the word aggregate, sometimes the word group. These are the most common translations of the word khanda. When we say khanda, we mean not just one solid thing, but it's a term denoting all kinds of phenomena that 
that fulfill one basic kind of function. And so all the things that perform the function of feeling are called, are put under the term Vetana Khanda or the feeling group. Feeling is something you all ought to know about. It's something we experience over and over again in the day. But we want to point out the difference between physical sensation, a physical experience, which is such as being touched. This is still Rupa Khanda. But the mental feeling towards that physical sensation is Vetanakanda. Vetanakanda comes in three basic kinds. One is pleasant feeling. Some of these feelings feel good, they feel nice, feel pleasant, they're pleasing to the mind. Other feelings are unpleasant. We don't, we don't like them, they're displeasing. And we call these unpleasant feelings. And there's a third kind of feeling that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But nonetheless, there are things, there are feelings which we have which are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And we call these neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings. So there are these three kinds of feeling happening to physical in relationship to rupakanda, towards physical experience, whether it happens through the eyes, ears, toes, nung, toes, nose, tongue, body, or mind. There are these three kinds of mental feelings. Now sometimes, when in a moment when there is feeling, when one of these kinds of feeling is happening, when there is feeling, sometimes the mind will be completely aware of nothing but this feeling, will be so engrossed in feeling that it, it knows nothing else. And it's in these moments that feeling is taken to be the ego, the self, or even the soul. Right? The pleasant feeling is considered to be I. Sometimes I am happy or I am sad, these feelings are taken to be the, the ego, the self, or sometimes they belong to the self. The self is the one that feels happy or that feels unpleasant or that feels neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So this feeling group is attached to in these two ways, either as the I that feels or the feeling that is felt by the ego. And then when this is done, this gives, this gives rise to attachment in ego, and the inevitable result of that will be dukkha, will be mental pain. But this attaching to feeling as I or mine is not at all necessary. Feeling is just a natural process. It's just part of the natural phenomena of change and flow. And it will happen naturally. But there is, there are, there is the feeling that is just feeling, mere feeling. We can say the mere or pure Vedana Khanda. And this is no problem. 
there's no dukkha arising from mere feeling. But when feeling conduct is attached to as I or mine, then we give it a special name and call it the feeling aggregate of clinging or the feeling group of attachment. When feeling is attached to as I or mine, then it becomes this feeling group or aggregate of attachment. And that is what will, that is dukkha. And so the, the crucial thing is this attaching to feeling as I or mine. When feeling is not attached to, it's just seen as a natural process and no dukkha arises. But when the mind foolishly takes feeling to be I or mine, this attachment causes <clears throat> dukkha. And so we need to observe feeling, which we can do in our, our own lives. It's something that we experience over and over again. And if we begin to observe and understand feeling as it really is, then it is possible to experience feeling without attaching to it as I and mine. So this is the second of the khandas, feeling khanda, and we need to learn the difference between the mere feeling group and the attached to, clung to feeling group. Now if we observe, we'll see that life doesn't stop at feeling. Once feeling arises, life continues, the mind goes further. And what happens after feeling is what we call regarding. Whatever is felt, when the mind feels something, there is feeling. And then the mind regards that thing that is felt as this or that. It is discriminated. That thing is discriminated in or classified one way or another. We may discriminate that whatever is felt to be male or female. It might be hot or cold or red or blue. In some way, tall, short, good, bad, win, lose, some, in some dualistic way, this thing is discriminated, it is categorized, it's classified. And this is, this is just more of the, the flow of the mind as it goes from feeling into, as it naturally flows into this discriminating or perceiving of whatever the experience is. This is just a natural process, but as is you, as you know, the mind often gets carried away at, with this, and it gets so absorbed into this perception that it takes the, the act of perceiving or the perception or the discrimination to be I or mine. This, the, the mind that perceives is taken to be the ego or self, or the 
the perception, the discrimination itself is taken to be the ego or something that belongs to the ego. So these are attached to discrimination regarding sanyakanda is is attached to as I and mine. And when that happens, there will be dukkha. This, this attachment to sanya, to perception discrimination, only arises because it isn't, we don't see that this is merely a, more of the natural process of life. This is just one part of life. It's one of the natural functions of the mind. One of the things the mind does is it, it discriminates. And this is just part of the flow that begins with ex- sense experience, feeling towards that experience, and then discrimination about the experience. And that's all it is. It's just a natural, ever-changing process. But when the mind doesn't have this understanding, then it attaches to sanyakanda as I and mine. This is a very powerful thing, this sanya. It's something that we're always attaching to. In our lives, how often are we attached to things like our perception of ourself as being an American, a German, a Frenchman, or a woman, a man, or whatever political affiliation we have, or our religious belief. We're always, in all these discriminations and classifications, we very often put a great deal of attachment and ego. But really, it's merely a natural process of life. It's the third of the five khandas, just part of life. And there's no need to attach to it and make it into dukkha. Now, after sanyakanda arises, after there is this perceiving, discriminating, regarding of the, the thing experienced, then the mind goes a bit further and starts to think about what to do. What to do about this thing. When there is something is discriminated as beautiful, then we think, well, what to do about it? Or if it's ugly, what are we going to do? Or good or bad or winning, losing, male, female. Whenever there is this discriminating of something as this or that, then the mind goes further and thinks about it. And this, this stirring up of ideas and concepts is the fourth aggregate, the sankarakanda, the thought aggregate. This again is just a natural process. It's the way the mind works. It's just a natural activity of mind. It, it happens according to various conditions, according to environmental factors, various causes. Sometimes because of the, the perception which, which touches off the thinking, the thinking will be in a wholesome, beneficial way. Other times the, the kind of discrimination will touch off a, 
unwholesome, dangerous, evil kind of thinking. Or other times the, the thoughts may be neutral. They may be neither good nor bad, neither wholesome nor unwholesome. But this is all just a natural process. It just flows from these, along these, with these different conditions. But often, the foolish mind that doesn't see this process closely enough will go and attach to these thoughts or concepts as I. I'm the one who thinks, or this is my thought, these are my thoughts, I am thinking. We're always doing this. In meditation, we're always identifying these thoughts that are going through the mind as I and mine. And sometimes it becomes quite annoying. But really it's just a natural process. There is a, a perception, sanya kanda, and then the mind thinks about what to do. It's a thought to do something. It's the intention, the commitment to do some kind of action. This is the fourth kanda. This, this aspect of ego, the egoistic identification with thought, was known in India over 2,000, 3,000 years ago. It's been most closely associated in the West with Descartes, who said the words cogito ergo sum, which are generally translated, I think, therefore I am. This is just another example of the foolish mind attaching to thought as ego or self. Descartes said this only yesterday. It was recognized in the Buddha's time as just another mental function, mental process to which the ignorant mind attaches egoistically. There's the, just the mere pure process of thinking, that's one thing. And then there is the process of thinking that has been attached to as me, as mine, and that causes dukkha. This is the fourth khanda, sankara khanda. And now there is the fifth khanda or the fifth group. This one is called vijnana khanda, which is generally translated to be the consciousness group. But let's, we need to explain exactly what we mean by consciousness here. Remember that there is the body, and the body has a nervous system. The nervous system includes various sense organs, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the taste buds, um, the nerves in the skin, in the body, and in the mind. The nervous system includes these six sense organs or these six subsystems of six different ways of sensing. And in these, there are also external objects, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and mental objects which come into contact with the body's nervous system. This is all, this is just natural processes. Now when, for example, the, 
the sense organ of the eyes comes into contact with an external object, a sight. When these come together, then there is a basic level of sense knowing, the necessary mental component to see. Seeing is not just a physical thing. It also involves the mind and that basic mental element, that necessary ingredient of consciousness, of knowing the sense object, the seeing of the sense object. This is Vijnanakanda, the consciousness group. This is very, very important. It's what holds everything together. And this is why it's listed last. It's a very, very special and extraordinary function of the mind. It's Vijnanakanda that knows the body and all the other khandas. It's only with this basic knowing, this basic consciousness via the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, or mind, these six different kinds of consciousness or types of consciousness. This is what holds all of experience together, or we can say it more simply, this is what the world is. As far as we're concerned, the world doesn't exist except through consciousness of it. Un until there is consciousness of the world, the world is just an abstract idea. It has no real reality. Things are only real when there is the knowing of them, when Vijnanakanda, sense consciousness, cognizes the, the sense object, whether in a visual way or through the ears or the other sense channels. This, this puts Vijnanakanda in a very special position, and so it's kept for last. Now, once again, this mental function, Vijnanakanda, is just a natural activity of the mind. It happens in response to the bodies coming into contact with various things in the environment. And there are also things happening within the body and within the mind. These natural phenomena arising within the body and mind are the objects which Vijnanakanda is conscious of. And so the consciousness of these things is just conditioned by the arising, by the conditioning, by the formation, the arising and passing away of these various physical and mental phenomena. This is mere consciousness. It's just bare awareness, bare consciousness, the, the minimal knowing of, of things. And that's just part of life. It's just one of the aspects of life. But however, the mind or human beings are born without a great deal of knowledge. The newborn infant doesn't really understand what we've just been talking about. It doesn't know what Vijnanakanda is. And so often, because of this, this ignorance in which we are born, ignorance means the lack of knowledge, not knowing. 
because we don't know, because the mind doesn't have the necessary understanding, then this sense consciousness is attached to. I know. I see, I hear, or whatever. Or I am, this is my seeing, or this is my hearing, this is my knowing, tasting, smelling, touching. Somehow, sense consciousness is attached to as I or mine because the mind doesn't have the necessary knowledge, doesn't have the intuitive wisdom that this is just a natural process, a natural functioning of the mind. It arises as just this flow of life, this process of action and reaction. But because of ignorance, it's attached to as I and mind, and that brings with it dukkha. We leave this one to last because it's quite extraordinary and it's, it's, it's central because it's consciousness that knows the body, consciousness knows the feelings, consciousness knows all the, the perceptions and the thinking. All these other things only can occur because of consciousness. Consciousness this sense consciousness is the <coughs> key element. And so for this reason, because of its importance in many, um, many philosophies or religious groups, this khanda is taken to be the self or the soul, the spirit. Sometimes vijnana is translated spirit. And it's believed to be this spirit that leaves the body either while sleeping and goes traveling around and comes back in the morning or at death the vijnana leaves the body and is reborn somewhere. These are beliefs in other, other religions or, or certain philosophies. But in, in Buddhism it is understood, it's seen that all phenomena including consciousness are just naturally arising and passing away phenomena. And they are not I, they're not mind, they're not ego, self, or soul. So that belief is one that is outside of Buddhism. So it's, it's very important to avoid this misunderstanding. We, have, we need to overcome the ignorance in which we are born and come to see that even sense consciousness is merely a naturally occurring phenomena, merely a naturally arising activity of the mind, just another aspect of life. So we can summarize and wrap up today's talk by saying the particular characteristic of Buddhism or the, the heart, the essence of Buddhism is that the five khandhas each of them individually or all of them together making up life. That the five khandhas are not a self or a soul. Each of the khandhas or somewhere inside them or outside of them, there is no, <clears throat> whether in the khandhas or the Taken, them taken individually or taken as a, a group or even outside the khandhas. There is nothing that is a self 
or a soul. This, this is the heart of Buddhism. This is what we've been trying to explain in today's lecture. That these khandhas are just naturally arising phenomena. They're just part of the process and flow of life. They're one phenomenon after another, after another. Just this flow of conditioned phenomena arising and passing away according to causes and conditions. It's all very natural. And in none of those khandhas, nowhere in any part of life, is there something that can really be called a self or a soul. This is the heart of Buddhism. This is the, the kind of wisdom that can free the mind from all, from all dukkha because it, it destroys all ignorance. Seeing that in all this life, in all these, these various activities of life, the physical activity, the activity of feeling, of discriminating, of thinking, and of, of cognizing, of, of knowing, in all these activities of life, there is nothing that is I or mine, you or yours, our or ours. It's merely naturally occurring phenomena. To see this is to be able to destroy all dukkha. Now, after listening to a talk like this, this may be new information for you. Don't, don't be daunted or put off by what may sound to you at this point a difficult to understand thing. Or don't, don't be so, so impetuous as to think that what we're talking about is completely unnecessary, that one doesn't have to, to pay attention to this in order to live one's life well. We want to point out to you as clearly as we can that this studying the five khandhas and getting to know them until seeing that they are merely natural processes, this is not beyond anyone's abilities. All of us are capable of studying the khandhas and seeing that they are merely natural phenomena. This is something that each of us can do. And so there is nothing to be daunted about or put off by. And also, we need to understand that this is the most important thing we can do with our lives. Because unless we are willing and able to undertake this study of the five khandhas, life will be always burdened with suffering. And when we suffer, we tend to share that suffering with others. If our lives are truly to be useful, these lives have to be freed from the burden of suffering, which means freeing life from the, the burden of attaching to the khandhas as I and mine. So this is absolutely necessary, and it's also within all of our possibilities. So we hope that you will be zealous and committed in undertaking this, this study. If you want to approach Buddhism as a philosophy, you cannot escape from studying the five khandhas. And if to you Buddhism is a religion, you cannot 
you cannot overlook the way of practice that leads to the realization that the five khandhas are not I and not mine. So, time is up, and on this point we will end today's lecture. <laughs>